Turn in your Bibles, Philippians chapter number four. Philippians chapter number four. Yeah, there, I, there we are. I'm on Philippians chapter number four, and uh, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you this evening. Amen. Philippians chapter four. I'd like to begin reading in verse number one tonight. Philippians chapter number four, verse number one. Probably one of my favorite books in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. And uh, there's truth that God laid on my heart tonight. I trust will be a help to you. Philippians chapter four. Verse number one, the word of God says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Has exactly what we need. So help us to approach it with uh, anticipation and with reverence and with sincerity of heart, knowing that we need to hear from you tonight, Lord. Uh, we don't just need to check a box off and, and, and a, a, an item to do of our list beginning on this Lord's Day. Lord, we need to hear from heaven. We need you to work in our hearts tonight. So I pray that you'd help us to seek after you and have our hearts open to you. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I said a moment ago, the book of Philippians is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's what's known as one of the prison epistles. Paul writes this while he is incarcerated in prison for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how your prison correspondence would look, but I can tell you mine would probably be pretty gloomy. I'd probably have a lot I'd be complaining about, Brother Ken. Uh, and I know nowadays they got five-star meals and cable TV and all that, but I'd probably be complaintive. I mean, I'd probably be, especially if I was, I mean, let me tell you something. If I, if, if I was ever persecuted for the gospel the way Paul was, you couldn't even live with me. That's all I'd talk about. Amen. How hard of a time I've got it and how difficult it is. And my soul, most of us, I mean, they can't mess up our order at the drive-thru without us asking for prayer. Amen. And, and I just know that my prison correspondence It'd probably be pretty gloomy. It probably wouldn't make for very joyful reading if you were to read the letters I would write were I in Paul's situation. But one of the things I love about the book of Philippians is how unlike my prison letters the book of Philippians is. Because when you read through it, you don't find an ounce of complaint. You don't find even a modicum of grumbling. Instead, you have a man here contained his testimony within the pages of this epistle whose heart is lifted resilient above his circumstances 
and who is joyful in the Lord. If we were to describe Paul in these passages, I think we'd need only look at some of the concepts that find themselves present in the book of Philippians. You'll find, for instance, the word rejoice is found nine times in the book of Philippians. You'd find the word joy is found six times in the book of Philippians. Over and over again, you'll find Paul not complaining, but praising the Lord, even in spite of his circumstance. What are some of those circumstances that we're talking about? Well, the first I would mention tonight is that he, very obviously, we've already said a word about it, he was detained in this past. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says this, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. This is literally a man sitting in jail writing this letter talking about the joy of the Lord. I don't know what circumstances you find yourself in tonight. And I've been in some services where I maybe felt like I was detained. (laughs) But I promise you tonight, there ain't none of us dealing with the struggles and trials that Paul was dealing with. He is detained in this passage. He describes his bonds, his imprisonment. But he goes on in verse 15 to describe how some were responding to that imprisonment. And he says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. He says, The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bond. Now, I don't understand everything about what Paul is describing there. And I can't necessarily math out all the ways in which this was being done. But it appears to me that it is likely that there were some that were distancing themselves from Paul because they did not want their name to be wrapped up with his name. And they were likely slandering him and claiming him to be no true preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeking to capitalize upon his bonds and add affliction to You know, we have a lot of ideas about the Apostle Paul. He's sort of a Christian celebrity to most church-going people. I've heard people describe how one of these days they get to heaven, uh, they'd love to be able to find Paul and meet him and talk to him and shake his hand and hear from him. That's a very different opinion than the world had of him whenever he walked this earth because he was a loathed, detested man. I would say this, not only is he detained, but he is despised in the book of Philippians. People hate him. They're distancing themselves from him. They're separating from him. They're wanting to put some daylight between him and them. And they are mocking him and scorning him and scoffing him and slandering him. He is not a very popular man when he's writing this. And yet you don't find him complaining a bit about the people that are slandering him. Well, let me tell you something. It's a great measure of our faith in God when men can slander us and we can just praise God anyway. I'll tell you this, time spent praising God is far better than time spent defending yourself. It'll help you more to spend that time just talking about how good God is instead of trying to prove how good you are. And Paul, he could have been trying to defend himself, but instead he doesn't. He just rejoices in the Lord. Not only is he detained and despised, but I find an interesting little note down in chapter number 4. In fact, it's right after our text that we read. Look at verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord. There's that word rejoice again. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. What does he mean? 
Well, he's talking about their giving to him. They're ministering to him in his needs and meeting his needs. We joked a moment ago about those that are in jail and cable TV and and five-star meals, and I'm not under any delusion it's necessarily all that pleasant, or that whatever leisures they have are not outweighed by the horror of what they're experiencing. But I'd remind you that it pales in comparison to what Paul was experiencing. All the wickedness that's present today in, in the incarceration program was just as present at that time. They just lacked things like basic care. They lacked things like consistent food and meals. And one of the things that was often done was the people that loved a person that might be in jail, it would be upon them to try to bring things to ease their burdens and to minister to them in their need. And so Paul would talk about when he was in prison at different groups ministering to him. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, bringing him food and bringing him sustenance, bringing him supplies. You remember he told Timothy he wanted him to bring his cloak and to bring his books and bring some things that might make his imprisonment just a little bit easier. And here what he's saying is this. I rejoice in the Lord. He says, I know that you love me and care about me and I know you wanted to minister to me but you couldn't. But written between the lines of all of that is this truth. Paul evidently had been doing without some things. He goes on to say this, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He says, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul had been having a rough time. One of the things he talks about is how blessed he is that now the Philippian believers are able to once again, finally, at the last, their care of him had flourished again. That means he had been doing without some. I'd say it this way. Not only was he detained and despised, evidently he was destitute, at least for a time. Now, I'm careful how I say that. God meets the needs of his people. But that don't mean you ain't going to have to do without some things that you want and some things that your flesh is convinced you need at times in your life. I'm saying this. This is not a fellow that's having his best day. And yet, where we would expect him to be talking about complaining and grumbling, talking about those that had wronged him, talking about how unjust and unfair his imprisonment was, all through the book of Philippians, man, he's just rejoicing in the Lord. You know what I call that? I call that the peace of God in a man's life. And it's interesting because another one of those phrases, you'll only find it twice in the book of Philippians, but you'll find both times or an iteration of them in our text, is the concept of peace. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul says this, The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 9, he invokes it again in a little bit different way. He says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, peace in the prison cell. Paul's sitting in a jail cell, but he's got more peace in his heart than most believers do in all of the splendor and wealth and prosperity and and leisure that most of us get to enjoy on a daily basis. I want to know how to do that. I mean, listen, my soul, when when, 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 when the copyright Nazis cut off the football game on YouTube, it ruins my day. Somebody say amen to that. Intellectual property rights, my... I want to learn how to have the joy that Paul had. I want to learn how to have the peace that Paul had. I want to learn how I could sit in a jail cell 
struggling, hated by a great group of people that had once called me their friend, a large group of people, and sitting there hungry in my belly, struggling, shivering in the cold, and talking about the goodness of God instead of the meanness of man. I learn how to have peace like he had peace. I believe if I could learn how to have peace like that, it'd help me in a lot of situations I find myself in. And I believe it would help me to overcome a lot of the onslaught of the devil in our hearts and our minds when he seeks to leverage our circumstances against us to rob us of the joy of the Lord in our lives. I think Paul gives us a few things that can help us to have peace in our trying times. I want you to notice five of them, and then I'll be done tonight. Don't get nervous. There are five short ones. Amen. <laughs> Look at verse number four. I like how he begins this. Paul don't mince words. He don't parse anything. Here's what he says. This is a man sitting in a prison cell, mind you. And he writes to a group of people. Whatever problems they was facing, they weren't sitting right beside him. And this is what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know, the first step to having peace in the midst of your circumstances, whatever they may be, is the praise of your lips. You gotta make your mind up that God's good even when your circumstances aren't. I remember hearing a charismatic preacher say on the radio years ago, and I don't know why this has always stuck with me. I guess, uh, you know, you ever heard someone say something so stupid that it just stunned you on a daily basis? <laughs> and, uh, but I remember listening to this preacher and he made this comment, and maybe there's a context I didn't understand, although I don't think that's likely knowing the man's life and ministry. But he said this, he made this statement, he said, God is a good God and the devil is a bad devil. If there's something in your life that's good, it came from God. And if there's something in your life that's bad, it came from the devil. My soul, don't anyone give him the book of Job. It is going to mess his theology up. He won't even know what to do. <laughs> hey, it's what Job said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. There might be some things that you think people have took away from you that God took away from you. And you say, but preacher, they're the ones that have it. Yeah, I know, but God could let you keep it. But he didn't. Job said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. What are we going to do with that, Brother Ken? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He looked at his wife. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? And you say, well, preacher, I, does that suggest that God is evil towards us? No, that word evil has two connotations in your scripture. It can mean something that is unrighteous or wicked, but it can also mean something that's unpleasant. In other words, something that is unpalatable. Job says, hey, God's given us a lot of things we've enjoyed, but sometimes He's going to give us some things that are hard to swallow. And He says, should we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? Hey, listen, God, He blesses us, but there's times that He allows things in our life that we don't understand. You've got to go ahead and make up your mind that He is praiseworthy no matter what you are experiencing. So much so, this is what Job said, though, slay me. He said, God might kill me through this. <laughs> Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. A lot would be helped in your heart and in your mind if you go ahead and make up your mind that he is worthy of your praise before you find out what your circumstance is going to turn out to be. If your faith in God is conditional, if it is relying upon the, the sunniness of your days and of your experiences, there's going to be a lot of times you ain't going to praise him. But if you recognize that he's good even when you can't see that he's good, that He's good even when He's laid something evil in your lap. He's good even when He's took away things that you thought you couldn't live without. That He's still good. Not because the things that He's done for you and to you are good, but because He's a good God no matter whether you understand Him or can puzzle Him out or not, then the sooner you'll have peace in your heart. He mentions two ways in which we ought to render the praise of our lips. The first, He says this, you ought to be ready in your praise. 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, it's interesting. I've heard preachers try to parse this all sorts of ways. They'll look at it and say, well, it doesn't say we have to rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. And, you know, the Bible then also says in everything give thanks. They'll say, well, you know, there's times that, you know, we can give thanks in something, but we ain't giving thanks for something. But then there's times that Paul says we ought to give thanks for everything that we receive. Here's the reality. There ain't no comfortable way around this. It is, a, it is a, a buffet to our flesh no matter how you want to count it. Even no matter what your circumstances are, you ought to immediately, even when you don't understand it, go ahead and praise God for it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be ready in your praise. But then he says this. He says if we ought to be resolved in our praise. Now, I believe every word in my King James Bible is right where it ought to be and what it ought to be. And I don't believe any of it's there by accident. And I don't believe there's a single redundancy in this Bible. Now, when we talk about a redundancy, we don't merely mean a repetition, but when something is redundant, it is needlessly repetitive. There's nothing that is needless in this Bible. And so when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, you might be spiritual enough, you didn't need to hear that second rejoice, but I've had some days, my friend, when I needed to be reminded that quick that I needed to rejoice no matter what my circumstances were. I mean, there's been times that the Lord has said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and the devil was waiting right there to black my eye. And I'm glad the Holy Ghost was waiting right there to say, Hey, again, I say rejoice. Do you know why that is? It is because invariably our flesh will seek to reevaluate God's worthiness in light of our circumstances. Uh, and we'll always seek to give some sort of uh, of exclusion to whatever our circumstances are, some sort of excuse as to what our circumstances are. One of the beautiful truths in the Bible is how oftentimes vague that it is with the things that people struggled with. I think it's because God does not want us trying to uh, loophole our way around His promises and His commands in our life. We could talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh and the fact that God does not identify it exactly. If you ever wonder why he didn't, then likely there's many reasons, but likely a good reason why he didn't identify it is because your thorn in the flesh may not look like his thorn in the flesh. His looked like an eye malady. Yours might be married to you. I don't know. Whatever that thorn in the flesh, it might be different for you and what you are experiencing, but the Lord is faithful no matter what. And I would say this, that in these circumstances, I don't know how your flesh operates. I know how mine does. And I bet they're a lot similar. (laughs) Whenever I find myself in unpalatable circumstances, there is always that inclination to say, now I ought to praise the Lord, but then to say, but Paul didn't know what I'm going through. But Paul didn't go through what I am experiencing. Be it worse, be it lesser whatever it it may be, there's always that inclination. I think the reason the Holy Ghost adds in this second, this affirmation of this concept of rejoicing, I think it betrays the propensity of the flesh to try to make excuses and squirm its way out of rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, you may not need to hear it again. Hey, praise the Lord, I do. And there's going to be times that you commit yourself to praise God in your circumstances and you'll find that your load does not get lighter, your burden does not get easier, but the devil instead intensifies the onslaught against your life. You have to be reminded that the same God that was faithful when things were good, the same God that was faithful when things were moderately bad, is the same God that is faithful when it is catastrophic. When when you don't understand, when you can't make sense out of it, when you cannot see the goodness of God in it, go ahead and rejoice Make your mind up you're not going to be a complainer in life. Make your mind up you're not going to be a complainer in life. It's interesting to study. We talked a little bit about it this morning, Israel's history. 
through the wilderness wanderings. You know what their main sin was? They committed a lot of sins, my friend. I mean, they, there was all sorts of, of depravity that they engaged in. They, 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 uh, that was where Baal worship began and them as a nation at Baal Peor. Uh, they intermarried with, uh, with Gentiles and pagans and all sorts of, of wickedness. But you know what the main sin that God keeps going back to and laying at their feet and charging them with is that of murmuring and grumbling. If Paul can praise God, you can praise God. I can praise God. If he can rejoice in the Lord. You say, but preacher, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't have to. What I know is that no matter what you're going through, God is greater and better than whatever you're experiencing and is worthy of your praise irrespective of your situation. So how do we have peace in the midst of our prison in our life? Well, the first involves the praise of our lips. But then look at verse number 5. He says this. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, that's an interesting verse. If I'm to be honest with you, I I don't know that I've ever really heard a a solid exposition of that verse. Nobody really talks about it. In fact, when they preach out of of Philippians chapter 4, oftentimes they'll just sort of blow past that and not really talk about it. But I think it's because there's often a misunderstanding about what that word moderation means. Now, we always think of moderation in terms of the concept of self-restraint or of a temperance of sorts. Like everything done in moderation, for instance, you'll hear people say, and by the way, what you do in moderation, uh, your children will do in excess. But I don't think that's what Paul means when he uses the term moderation here. Do you know what the word means? It means literally your disposition. And what it really suggests is a pleasant disposition. Say, preacher, what's Paul getting at? He's saying this, not only should we have the praise of our lips to give us peace, but we should engage ourselves in the pleasantness of our disposition. Let your moderation be known. What's he saying? Let people know you're happy in the Lord. Let people know you're joyful in the Lord. It's no wonder a lot of people don't want any part of Christianity. Most Christians act miserable all the time. They seem like some of the most unhappy people in the world. Oftentimes they struggle to laugh, they struggle to smile, they take themselves altogether too seriously and everything that happens in their life is some cross that must be born. And it's no wonder that people look at Christianity of that sort and of that type and say, I don't want any of that. I'm not saying we have to make Christianity look like some sort of carnal party, some sort of of ancient activity of lewdness. But I am saying this, man, there is joy in the Lord and God's people ought to be joyful. And I will tell you that if you yield yourself to the, the I, I'm gonna don't look for your Bible for this because you ain't you ain't gonna find it. If you yield yourself to the spirit of Eeyore, <laughs> I promise you, it's gonna be harder for you to have joy and peace in your life. There's a lot of people. It's no wonder they can't get past the things that they struggle with. They don't want past it. It's become a mantle. It's become, it's become a label. It's become a plaque. It's become a title. It's become the very defining thing of their life. And they drape themselves in it. It's no wonder. I'll tell you this. One of the things that will contribute to having the peace of God in your heart and in your life is we'll let the peace of God reign in our hearts. You've got to let, you got to let go of some things and you've got to let God do some things if you want the peace of God in your heart and in your mind. And part of what's required in that is that we ought to be a joyful people and there ought to be a pleasantness to our disposition. We ought not see ourselves as the standard bearer of misery and unhappiness, but rather as a people who have every reason to be happy in the Lord. 
Let your moderation be known. He mentions two things here. The first we've already preached. I won't preach it, but he mentions the joy in our heart. He's saying the things you've got to be joyful about, let men know about it. Let it be a characterizing, defining quality of your testimony and your disposition in how you interact with other people. Tell them how good God is. Talk about the goodness of God. You say, preacher, they might already know. I know, but you need to be talking about it. I know, but you need to be reminded of it. I know, but you, I, I bet a man sitting in a prison cell needed to be told just every now and then how good the Lord was. Paul was flesh and bone, just like you and I are flesh and bone. And no doubt he struggled. No doubt his mind was assaulted. No doubt his heart was faint. No doubt there were times that he was discouraged and disheartened. But he was the only light in that Roman prison cell. And he understood how important it was that he not let unhappiness and misery and sorrow and sourness come to define him. God's people ought to be the happiest people in the world. Nobody in the world has anything better to be happy about than a saved, born-again child of God. What does it mean when we allow a world broken, lost, undone, with the hollowed-out hull of of existence to carry more happiness than the saved, blood-washed, born-again child of God? What commentary does that proffer of our Christianity that we would look and, and allow them to appear more joyful than what we truly are? In other words, drop the mantle of suffering. You'll suffer enough in this world without making it a romantic notion. Drop the mantle of suffering and take up the joy of rejoicing. And let your moderation be known. Why? Well, he tells us. Because not only the joy in our heart, but he says the judge is at hand. He says the Lord is at hand. We're going to have to answer for him one of these days. You ever complained about someone only to have them show up right behind you at the moment you were complaining about them? You ain't lived till that's happened to you. That's exhilarating. <laughs> what an embarrassment it would be for God to show up and us talking bad about Him. Oh, preacher, that's silly. I never talk bad about God. Oh, sure you do. Listen, when all you do is spend your time focusing on the negative things that have happened in your life, when all you do is spend your time talking about how afflicted and persecuted and downtrodden and suffering that you are, that's exactly what you're doing. You know what Paul said about that? I mean, this old Paul, I tell you, I, I can understand why the heretics want to cut Paul out of the Bible. He's a little tough sometimes. I mean, to look at him and know that he had the same Spirit of God indwelling him that I have indwelling me. To look and know that the same grace of God that was sufficient for him could be sufficient for me. It puts me to shame sometimes. You know what Paul said about the trials and afflictions and sufferings of this world? Now, this isn't a man that knew anything about him, you understand. He had only been shipwrecked and beaten and and a night and a day in the deep and cast to the wild beasts at Ephesus and stoned at Lystra and left for dead. I mean, this is a man, he had never really suffered much, but what little suffering he experienced, you know what he said? He said, for the sufferings of this life, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. (laughs) He said, they ain't even worthy to be compared. He said, they ain't worthy to be talked about. They ain't worthy to be considered. They ain't worthy to be, to be weighed. And has it ever dawned on you that when you let grumbling and murmuring and complaint infest your spirit, what you're really doing is telling God how little you think of heaven and claiming that what we experience, that what He's granting is not worthy relative to what we're experiencing. Paul says, hey, those things we go through, this is a man that knew, this is a man that had experienced, this is a man that had suffered. 
And he says, those things that I've been through, he said, I didn't even want to talk about them, but you've made me a fool. You've compelled me to foolishness through glorying. I've had to def- uh, defend my apostleship, so I'll tell you about it. But he said, if I had my way, I wouldn't be talking about how bad life is. I'd be talking about how good the Lord is because he is faithful and the things I've been through, they ain't going to mean nothing when I see his face. They ain't going to mean nothing when I lay at his feet. They ain't going to mean nothing when I'm standing in his glory and in the light of his presence. He said, they're not worthy to be compared. To the glory that shall be revealed in us. Hey, listen, Paul reminds them, you're going to meet the Lord. He's at hand. Uh, what are you going to be saying about Him when He arrives? He mentions the praise of our lips, the pleasantness of our disposition. But then look at verse number 6. Preacher, I want to have peace. I'm struggling. I'm going through a hard time. How can I do that? Well, the Bible tells us. It says, be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Preacher, how can I have peace with what I'm going through? Well, one of the things that will help you is the prayer of faith. You ought to be taking everything that you're going through and talking to the Lord about it. It's amazing how ready we are to talk to people that can't do a thing about our problems, about those problems, instead of talking to the only one that can do anything about those problems. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but I do want to give you a little truth tonight. We'll talk to people that that obviously don't care about what we're going through rather than and try to get them to care about what we're going through rather than talking to the one that cares more than anyone else about what we're going through. Here's Paul's advice. He says, you're struggling? Pray about it. Well, I don't know if it's worth praying. He said, be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I see the command to pray here. And I'll tell you this. Hey, listen, if you're if you're struggling, uh, a good bellwether, either of your opinion of prayer or of your opinion of your problems, is this simple question. Have you talked to God about them? Have you asked the Lord about what you're going through and about what you're experiencing? It is not just a suggestion to pray. It is not just the counsel to pray. But it is a command to pray. You ought to immediately take those matters to the Lord. You say, well, preacher, God might not do anything about it. Well, listen, even if He doesn't change your circumstances, He can give you peace in your heart concerning them. And I would ask you this question. And I understand. Why do we have to be talked into praying? (laughs) Why do we have to be preached into praying? (laughs) Why do we have to be begged and browbeat and shamed into praying? Could it be our flesh is scared of the power of prayer? And could it be that sometimes we're all too addicted to the suffering that we're experiencing? I see the command to pray, but then number two, I see the comfort of peace. He says this, here's this phrase, first time in the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's amazing the pride that exists in the human heart. We'd sooner have trouble we can't understand than have peace we can't understand. That's all right. We'll just, we're, we're going to take a moment on that one, all right? We would sooner have trouble we can understand than peace we can't understand. You know how I know that's true? Because the book of Job is largely occupied with Job's lamentation over the fact that he doesn't understand what he's going through. And you know what he asks? He says, if I could just find him. He said, if I could just plead my cause before him. If I, if I could just, just open the words of my mouth. He said, then I would know. Then I would understand. 
Now that's an interesting thing. And I'm not trying to be rough on Job. Uh, undoubtedly a far more consecrated man than I could ever hope to be. But wouldn't you think a man going through what he's going through would rather have peace than answers? Does it not say something about us that we'd sooner have trials we do understand than peace that we don't understand? What do you really want out of what you're going through? I'll tell you what Paul said. If you will prioritize peace, then pray about the matter. But preacher, I don't see how God could... What's well, a good thing you ain't God and you don't have to understand it and you don't have to see it and nobody's asking for your opinion or perspective or advice on how that's going to work? Isn't that good? I tell you, I've learned sometimes to appreciate a lack of responsibility. Amen. I remember I used to work at a little hardware store, and they offered all kinds of services in that hardware store. And one of the things they did, they offered sharpening lawnmower blades. And they tried for years to teach me how to sharpen lawnmower blades. And I'd squirm like an eel to get out of learning that, because I knew what happened. If I learned how to do it, it'd be my job to do it. Praise the Lord, to this day, I can't sharpen a chainsaw chain. Amen. You'll have to do it for me. Why is it that you believe that you have to be able to define and interpret and understand everything about what you're going through instead of contenting yourself to have the peace of heart of understanding that God is in control and that it's really not you that has to figure this thing out in the first place? It would only be, it would only be the puffed up flesh of our pride of our flesh that would demand that we be somehow indoctrinated into the inner workings of our sufferings, that somehow we must have those first two chapters of the book of Job for us to bear our sufferings. But Job didn't have the first two chapters. Job didn't understand what he was going through. Job couldn't puzzle out what he was experiencing. And I will tell you this, sometimes in your life you can get so focused on the why that you miss the who in all of it. Gain the peace that the who provides that the why never could give you. I see the comfort of peace, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then I want you to notice verse 8. He says this, finally, brethren. Paul said, finally, brethren, a lot. He was a good Baptist preacher. He'd say, finally, brethren, then go another half chapter or chapter. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, he says, think on these things. How can I have peace in the midst of my struggles and trials, preacher? Well, one of the things that will help you is purity of mind. What do you fill your mind with? Notice here in this passage how we should fill our minds. And he gives a laundry list. Let's just read it and notice it. One is whatsoever things are true. You'd be amazed how much peace you'd get if you'd focus your mind only what you know to be true instead of what might be, what could be. Preacher, what could they have said? Preacher, what could they have done? Preacher, what could they be planning? It's amazing. We live in a world that is just, I'm talking about mainline addicted to fear and to the prospect of terror and of things falling apart. Have you been to the store? Things have already fallen apart. It's, It's fine, all right? God's still good. Amen. Preacher, it could get much worse. Yeah, undoubtedly it would. But my question is this. What's your mind going to be focused on? You see, when you are willing to traffic in possibilities instead of concrete biblical truth, you lay yourself open to all manner of predation upon your mind. Because I tell you this, there's almost no end to what could be true. There's almost no end to what could be true. Now, here's what I mean by that regarding your circumstances, regarding what you're experiencing, what you're going through, your trials, what you're, what you're facing. There's almost no end to what could be true. But this is why we must ground ourselves on what we know to be true. It says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, 
Preacher, he lied about me. Well, focus on whatsoever things are honest. Preacher, he's politicians. If you ever expect anything, if you expect a politician to do anything other than lie, somebody will slap you in the jaw. Maybe knock some sense into you. Preacher, they're lying about things. Yeah, they're pretty good at it. The father of lies is helping them. They're pretty good at it. You can focus on the lies, or you can focus on what things you know are honest. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest. Preacher, did you hear what they did? It's funny, people always say that. Preacher, did you see this? Preacher, did you hear that? Hey, did you hear about this? I used to have somebody, they'd say it all the time. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? You And it invariably had to do with some injustice in the world. Can I remind you, Paul is unjustly sitting in a prison cell. He's there for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, you know what? I've, I've had to learn how to get my mind off of those things that are not just and get my mind on things that are just. It will consume your joy if you let your life be focused on the things that are unjust instead of on the justness of the Lord in regards to this world's working. It says, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, he says, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise. He said, that's what we ought to be thinking on. It's no wonder some of us struggle to have peace of mind when we allow our mind to be treated like some sort of, of trash heap upon which every anxiety of the world, every scandal of the world, every injustice and wickedness. Of the world. You say, preacher, you're saying we ought to bury our head in the sand. No, I'm saying you ought to bury your head in the Scriptures and get a biblical perspective on what's happening in this world today, and quit being scandalized at lost people behaving like lost people, and remind yourself that the God of glory sits upon the throne of the universe, and that He is in control of all things, and that He is a trustworthy God and a faithful God, and get your mind on Him instead of on all that. He talks about how we should fill our minds, and then he talks about how we should focus our minds. He says this, think on these things. Now that's amazing. He doesn't say, don't think on those other things. He says, think on these things. Uh, listen, an empty mind can be a blessed thing. If you don't believe that, I can introduce you to some people. But you know, here's the reality. Peace comes from proactive focus upon the truth of God's Word and the character of God's person. It's not just a matter of putting your mind on a psychological diet. It's not just detoxing yourself from the things of the world. You've got to fill your mind with the right thing. He does not say, whatsoever things are false, don't think on them. He doesn't say, whatsoever things are dishonest, whatsoever things are unjust, whatsoever things are impure, whatsoever things are ugly, whatsoever things are a bad report, don't think on these things. He instead says, you ought to fill your mind with the right things and then focus your mind on those things. It'd help your peace of mind if you just go day by day actively thinking about the goodness of God. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking, but I am talking about the prudence of scriptural mind frame. And I'm saying that we ought to instead adjust our perspective on what we know to be true of the Lord. Hey, there's nothing wrong with going through your day singing songs to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with going through your day listening to, listening to Scripture being read. There's nothing wrong with going through your day quoting Scripture in your heart. You'd be amazed what it'd do. I mean, listen, I, without nary you buying a single book or a seminar for $39.95 or three payments of it, you'd be amazed how it would radicalize and transform your life if you would just get your mind fixed on the Lord and on who He is. He mentions one more thing, and I'll mention it and be done. Look at verse 9. He says this, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace 
shall be with you all. Preacher, I want to have peace in my circumstances. How can I do that? Well, it'll involve the praise of your lips, the pleasantness of your disposition, the prayer of faith, the purity of your mind. But it's going to take the presence of God to enjoy peace in your life. Paul says you're not going to have the peace of God till the God of peace is with you. That's fascinating, isn't it? Your Bible, nothing's there by accident. And he, he says to believers, if you do these things, the God of peace shall be with you. And I thought he was with us always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I thought he never left us nor forsook us. Isn't that right? Let your conversation be without covetousness. For as much as you know that uh, it is written, I will never leave thee uh, nor forsake thee. I, I thought he was always with us. There's certainly that is true, that he's everywhere at all times and he'll never leave us and he'll never desert us and he'll never forsake us and he'll never betray us. And yet here in this passage, it is said in the most conditional of terms that if you do these things, then you'll have the God of peace with you. You know what I found to be true? both in Scripture and in my experience, is this, that there's a distinction between what we could call the express presence of God and the experiential presence of God. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, God is expressly with all of His people at all times. But I don't know about you, there's been plenty of times in my life when I was distant from Him. I mean, after all, how could we draw nigh unto God and Him nigh unto us? If just by den of His omnipresence, He is always in all places at all times, unless there be some distinction between where He is in the most literal sense and how He inhabits our life and how we sense and experience His presence and His fellowship day by day. And I'll just tell you this, there's a, there's a lot of Christians that, yeah, God's in their life, but they're not walking with Him. Paul says you want peace in your life? You need the presence of God, you got to walk with Him. How do we do that? Well, notice the first thing he mentions is the pattern that they were to emulate. Paul says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Now, Paul is saying this distinctly and uniquely from his office as, as an apostle. I don't know necessarily that Paul would have considered himself a bad example. He seems to suggest often that, that as he followed Christ, that they were to follow him and that they were to pattern themselves after his life. And I will certainly say that if we're living a life that men cannot pattern themselves after, then rather than sheepishly demurring and, and portraying a false humility, maybe we ought to have enough sincerity to try to fix our life such that the people that are going to follow us, regardless of how we're living, are not endangered and imperiled by following our example. But I'm also reminded that the things which they had learned and received and heard and seen in him were not just merely the example of a godly character, but many of those things that they had learned and received and heard were Scripture itself. What he's saying is this, if you want peace in your life, then you have to live a peaceable life. If you want peace in your life, you have to walk with God. You can't introduce the chaos of sin in your life and expect to have peace. You can't, you can't bring heartache into your life through rebellion and disobedience and, and stubbornness and waywardness and then wonder why you don't have any peace. How laughable would it have been if the prodigal down in the far country had sat around and said, well, why is things going so rough? <laughs> I guess he finally did ask that when he came to himself. But if you're standing there looking down at him, standing over the, the hog pen and the slob, you would have looked at him and said, well, dummy, because you left the father's house. That's why you're here. You left the Father's house. Why ain't you back where you had a warm meal and a warm bed and a safe roof over your head and the love of a Father? You left the Father's house. That's why your life is a mess. 
I wonder how often if we held that same standard, we'd have to look at us. We're saying, Lord, why don't I have any peace? Why am I struggling? Why am I discouraged? Why am I disheartened? And have to look at ourselves and say, well, you left the Father's house, dummy. You wandered from Him. You're not living for Him. You're not walking with Him. In other words, there is a manner of living that engenders peace in a man's life. But the way of the transgressors is hard. It's hard. You want peace in your life, one of the things you'll have to do is get your life in line with this book to enjoy peace. And then notice the peace that they would experience. He says this, the God of peace shall be with you. You know, the only thing better than having the peace of God is having the God of peace. I mean, imagine it in any other terms. If you had something that was of or from someone, then if you lost that thing, you'd just be without it. But if you had the person, not the gift, but the giver, (laughs) not the gift, but the giver, you'd always be assured that whatever resources you needed, that they had would be at your disposal. A great many Christians want the peace of God. They just don't want the God of peace to get the peace of God. Oh, they want to experience some sort of happiness, some sort of joy, some sort of contentedness and ease of mind. But they don't want to have to walk with God to get that. Can I remind you that the peace of God only comes through letting the peace of God reign in our hearts and the peace of God can only reign in our hearts in as much as the God of peace reigns in our hearts. If you want to have peace in your life, I'll tell you, if you're missing this, you're missing everything. If you're missing the presence of God in your life through daily fellowship with Him, through communion with Him, through obedience to Him, then it's no wonder if there's no peace in your life. And the very first step for you to having peace in your life, listen, before you, before you work on your mind, before you take your problems to Him in prayer, before you try to fix your pleasantness or your disposition, before you determine even to praise Him, you ought to pile up on an altar and say, God, this matter has separated me and my fellowship from you and I need forgiveness and I need cleansing and God, I just want to walk with you and I want your presence in my life so I can have your peace in my life. It's only going to come from the presence of the Lord in your heart and in your life. So here's the question. Where's He at tonight and where are you at tonight? Where's He at tonight and where are you at tonight? And if there's any daylight betwixt the two, won't you meet God in this altar? And get that matter resolved this evening. Father, I pray that you'd bless this invitation. As a musician comes, I pray that you'd have your will and way tonight. Lord, I want your peace in my life. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what I'm facing, Lord, I want and I need your peace in my life. So help me, Lord, to put into practice all these things. But Lord, above all, help my heart to thirst after you as the heart thirsteth after the water brook. And Lord, help me just to seek and to desire you above all else. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Christ's name.